First, though, we are talking about a vote that took place yesterday at the Vancouver School Board. So what, one of our guiding principles is to create environments of safety and caring. And I think when we have, uh, you know, employees, uh, students, parents who are not feeling that because of this um, particular mandate that didn't include K-3, um, I think it makes sense that we do the, we, that we do the right thing and, and extend it. And that is how the vote went to extend that mask mandate. So let's bring in trustee Alan Wong with the Vancouver School Board. Thanks so much for being available again today. You're welcome. Good afternoon, Jill. Good afternoon to you. Can you tell me a little bit what was voted on at the Vancouver School Board meeting yesterday? The motion read that the grade 4 to 12 mask mandate be extended to include kindergarten to grade 3 students subject to the same exemptions as currently provided. So that was moved and it was uh, unanimously uh, passed and adopted yesterday. So when do you anticipate, or does that mean, that schools throughout Vancouver, in the Vancouver district, they will have to adopt that policy? What it means is the, the board's direction is to go um, to have K-3 to to in, be included in the current mandate. Um, so when it's passed it's then forwarded to the superintendent of schools she will operationalize that direction so i she would probably talk to um the provincial health officer and talk about this the direction vancouver is going and then have that communications set up to then spread out to all our schools so is it a done deal or is the, there a possibility the superintendent goes to the province and the province says, hold off, we have other policy coming or we don't want a patchwork from school district to school district? In my view, it's a done deal that it's in Vancouver. It will be the K to three will be the same as the four to 12. Um, so the direction by the board is, is what Vancouver will be doing. Um, you know, I don't consider it a patchwork. Um, the province will be making some announcement of some sort at, uh, you know, in, in the next half an hour. Uh, whether they go along in that direction, I hear other boards might be um, uh, bringing forward motions in the same direction. It would be great to hear if the province went um, uh, on a provincial-wide um, level to have that done. It'd be, it'd be simpler. Right, because otherwise it would be every other school board going through the same process that that you went through yesterday, wouldn't it? Uh, Yes, if they wanted to go in that direction. I've already heard overtures that some some are um, going to be asking their boards to to make that same direction. My my goal is to to look and um, understand and hear from Vancouver parents, Vancouver staff, teachers, um, and all staff, and do what we think is best for Vancouver. And what is it, do you think, that led to Vancouver being the first to do this? Was it the the amount of correspondence you're getting from parents, uh, what you're hearing in the community that the board is the first, I believe, the first in the province to do this? Correct. Uh, a number of, of reasons. There were a couple of trustees, myself and Trustee Parrott, were we're looking at this motion and had this motion drawn up at the end of August. Now, since then, the, 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 um, with the COVID-19 uh, Delta virus variant, 
uh, is looking at those that are un- this children that are under age 10. There has been an increase in, in the infection rate and communicable and transmission rate. Um, so it's even more reason now than when we first thought of the motion, uh, more reason that we move forward with this. We've also heard, as you said, you know, have we been receiving emails? Yeah, we have been receiving emails and calls from parents and staff, you know, not only about themselves, but of vulnerable um, students or, or family members. Like if the students were at school, they bring home uh, a lot of extended families, um, grandparents. So just the concern um, and the stress of vulnerable people, whether at home or at school. And I don't know if the motion, if you talked about this last night, but what about the enforcement of this? I, I guess it would be the same as, as whatever happens from grades four and up. But how do you make sure that everybody then, once this comes in as a rule, that everybody is, in fact, following the mandate? I think that would help. Like what's currently happening is a, a lot of the students in K-3 are, are already wearing masks. Um, there, it's, it's a little challenging, I believe, for, and I'm hearing this from some of the teachers, is to encourage others. And then there's the confusion of why 4 to 12, we don't have to do it. If it's, if it's across the board, and, you know, the 4 to 12 was almost arbitrary, that, 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 um, that split in, in terms of a mandate requirement as opposed to, you know, encouraging the culture. So um, I think this helps. It helps to explain, to say that, okay, it's all across the board. Um, everyone uh, needs to be masking up, at least, for, at least for the time being until, in my view, until the vaccinations are here for that age group, for the age group, you know, 6 to 12 age group. And I hear that's coming soon. Right. And then you think we might see a relaxing of that rule? Well, we'll visit at that time. Um, but I see that it, it helps quite a bit when we see a vaccination for that age group because there's more con- there is concern because you know when you're not vaccinated um, you're you're that much more susceptible and not only that the transmission permissibility from there to other in the school um, we're hearing from student uh, parents of students in the four to seven grades like uh, you're you're requiring my kids to mask but there's other um, children in the school that don't have to mask. So there, you know, it's not just the K to three. It's 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 all students in the school and uh, family members at home. And what about other measures? And I know we've been focused a lot on the mask mandate and the shift and this vote by by trustees. But here we have kids that the mask mandate doesn't apply to outdoors, but there are going to be kids who are playing together, who are in very close contact when they're outdoors, after school and programs and such. So there is still going to be that potential for transmission. So what about other measures to keep kids safe? Well, uh, we've been... um called by the the uh, Minister of Education of Vancouver is doing a, an excellent job with regards to ventilation and that's uh, in within the schools as they're as uh, the the ventilation right now you know when it's still somewhat warm uh, you have a lot of the windows that are being able to be opened or there's teaching outdoors uh, but Ventilation is a huge part, and um, we've done an incredible job, and I thank staff for that. Uh, with regards to outside, uh, the, the 
the ability to remove your mask as long as you're at distance. Removing mask outside is is allowed. It's very important to to state the difference between outside and inside um, play uh, with regards to the mask. It's it's following the four to ten four to twelve grade levels with regards to the mask mandate. And if there is exemption for someone who is currently in the 4 to 12 grade, that exemption as well still follows for the K to 3. Uh, some people just can't wear the mask because of allergies or, or whatnot. So that still remains. All right. And and just before uh, I let you go, Trustee, so it sounds like uh, there's a process now with the superintendent. Uh, do, do you know what the timeline looks like for that? Or do you think that perhaps we're going to have an announcement today of, an, of a province-wide mask mandate and, and we won't even have to go down that route? I have no idea what the announcement today by um, PHO and the Minister of um, Health will be today. Um, it'd be much easier if, if they went that direction, but I, you know, that's their decision. Um, with regards to us, we're, we'll, we'll be moving forward. But we'll be moving forward in a respectful way to have that conversation um, with the province. All right, Trustee Alan Wong, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jill. Have a nice day. You too. We are going to shift gears and take a look at a new study. It was put out by Royal LePage, and it takes a look at home ownership versus renting. It's the Royal LePage Rent versus Buy Report. And joining me to talk more about this is Karen Yulevsky, Chief Operating Officer, Royal LePage Real Estate Services. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Jill. Happy to be here. Uh, I think we love talking about real estate and often do so on the program. I just want to start off, though, by saying people will hear this and go, well, of course they're going to say home ownership is the better choice because it's a report put out by Royal LePage. But what exactly were you looking at in this particular study? Yes. So we had the study commissioned by Will Dunning, who's a very well-known economist, who ran data at 278 scenarios, actually, that broke down whether or not in those cases it would be more beneficial to buy versus rent. And what Will discovered was that in 91% of cases, home ownership was financially more beneficial than renting, assuming that the buyer had a 20% down payment. And why was that such an important factor? The down payment is the average down payment that we actually see. We actually see in BC, the average down payment is 22%. So the the, the number that was used there made the most sense because uh, more than half of people are putting down more than 20% uh, down payment. Uh, but what is most interesting about it is that uh, the idea that in 91% of the cases, uh, because principal is a forced savings, there is there is a benefit over renting uh, that is quite sizable. It actually works out in British Columbia to be seven hundred and sixty nine dollars per month. It's a sizable amount. Uh, that is, and that kind of uh, my next question was going to be: It must depend then where which market you're investing in, uh, what part of the country you are putting that down payment uh, down and, and purchasing real estate. There are some differences based on regionality, but what we did discover through the scenarios, which were national, is that even in hot markets, there was that benefit to buying versus renting. Uh, in very luxury markets, we did see that it's, uh, it could be slightly less beneficial, uh, but overall, across Canada, remarkably, the results were very similar. 
And did it look also then at other factors or the differences, uh, some of the key differences being if you're renting and the fridge breaks, you don't have to go buy a new fridge. You call the landlord or you call somebody to replace it. Yeah. If you're renting and the roof needs to be replaced, that's not a cost that comes right out of your pocket. Whereas if you are an owner, it does. There was an analysis of the costs that uh, are ensued in the first year in particular, and uh, even even with those costs, uh, the results trended in favor of, of the uh, the buying scenario. And again, it's given that the principal is so much of the mortgage payment, that for savings um, is, is, is sort of taken out of the equation. And when you compare what you're paying in terms of those uh, maintenance costs, the interest on your mortgage versus what you're paying in rent, that is where the difference really lies, and that that is why we have found through the study that it was more beneficial to be a buyer. How much of a factor are the interest rates, though, as far as we know that they've been quite low for the past several mm-hmm. years, but that must uh, be part of the equation as well if the interest rates start inching up? Uh, based on the, the analysis that was completed, uh, the, the interest rates um, that were used are reflective of, of current state. Um, certainly, interest rates can have an effect. Um, we would have to, to look at a different analysis to see what that might look like uh, over time. But uh, based on interest rates that have been low and low for quite some time and, and predicted not to be raised tremendously in the, the next several months, uh, the, the numbers did work out in favor again of buying. And when we're talking about this and, and thinking of a home as an investment, is it? did this study then look at over time that it, it's not that somebody's buying this, this property and selling it again a year later, two years later, but did it look at it as the, the benefit of holding on to it as an investment for several years? So a couple of interesting things. So what we did look at is if prices declined over a number of years. What would that mean for the buyer and would the results still look the same? So what the study discovered is that even if prices were to to decline 10% over the next 10 years, half of the homeowners in the scenario would still see a positive return and the other half would only see a modest loss. There is that long-range component that was included. In terms of comparing ROI to you know, for example, investing in the stock market, there's no direct comparison in the study itself. Uh, that you have to determine on a case-by-case basis and look at your own assumptions that you make and what you think is realistic and attainable based on the type of investment you prefer, whether that's housing or the stock market. The one comment that uh, that is clear is that you do have to have a certain amount of diligence if you're looking to invest in the stock market because you would be required to to take that money and ensure that you use it in a way that continues to provide you with those returns as opposed to paying your mortgage every month, which is, again, that forced savings approach that you don't really have to think about so much. Right. What about the other costs that maybe aren't thought about as much? We're talking about when purchasing things like lawyers' fees. There are fees for realtors, real estate agents. There are transfer taxes, things that really can add up to a lot of money. So the one-time fees were included in the study. So those closing costs that you speak of were also contemplated in the study. So uh, even with those, uh, they are luckily one-time fees. Uh, It it does still net out. But you should be prepared, obviously, as a a consumer. You need to make sure you've done your homework and you know what those costs are going to be so you're not caught by surprise on the closing date. And I would imagine, too, what factors in there is also if somebody is going to stay in the same home for 10, 20, 30 years, as opposed to upsizing or downsizing, because those fees would all then become a factor every time. 
Absolutely. I, I, sometimes, uh, you know, you, you may switch houses a couple of years uh, in a row due to circumstances. So um, that is a form of a personal sort of analysis you have to conduct. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all, certainly, but um, you know, if it's not a right time to buy because you think you may be transient, uh, you're, you're looking at a new community and you're not sure if you want to lay down roots, then in that case, renting may make more sense either from a financial perspective or just based on your comfort level that you're just not in a position to be putting in those roots at that time. Right. And get, and getting back to kind of one of your first points, too, was this is based on having that 20 percent down payment, which especially in a market like Metro Vancouver and B.C. is really difficult in a lot of cases. It can be. It can be. So, uh, again, we do find that uh, more than a half of first time buyers have managed to accumulate the down payment. But if we look at the scenarios, even with smaller down payments, the numbers would change. But in most instances, the cost would still be lower for ownership than renting just by smaller amounts. Uh, The study also looked at, again, that difference between paying the mortgage every month and paying the rent every month. Uh, How did that factor in, in that there there are limits to how much a landlord can up the rent? Uh, And again, you're kind of at the whims of of the, I guess, depending on what kind of mortgage you have, if it's a variable or if you're up for renewal and you don't know where the interest rates are. Did that factor in just how much kind of freedom there is comparing the mortgage compared to rent payments? So we did use a fixed a fixed rate mortgage, as that's the most popular choice. So that uh, would ensure that in the study, at least, we had that consistency in terms of the number. So the mortgage amount was not going to fluctuate, or the mortgage interest rate was not going to fluctuate over over time. Uh, we did use a, 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 a sort of standardized increase of 2.5% in terms of rent on an annual basis. You know, there's different caps throughout Canada uh, in terms of what rent can go up year by year. But we, we pick some numbers to base the assumptions on. Uh, again, there, there are slight variances, I would say, by, by region and by city. But uh, by and large, uh, the, the numbers sort of fit into what a typical consumer would see when they're comparing the rent versus the buy. All right. Some interesting numbers coming out of that report, uh, for sure. Karen Yulevsky, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much. Thank you. Well, remember the stories of Granny's, the nightclub that was set up in a condo? It was early on in the pandemic, and you may have seen the footage on the TV news a few times when police were called to the condominium. The owner of the condominium was eventually arrested, sentenced to one day, I believe, and also fined for breaking a lot of the rules that were in place. At that point, the restrictions were in place, and we were not allowed to be gathering let alone setting up nightclub-like facilities inside a private home. Well, that owner is now the subject of a civil forfeiture action. And here to explain what this is all about is Sarah Lehman, lawyer with the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I was reading through and trying to make as much sense as I could of this action, but I have a lot of questions, so I'm hoping you can walk us through because it kind of reads like a movie script a little bit when you when you look at what's being alleged to have taken place and what the province is going after. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit what basis does the province have when filing, when going ahead with a claim for a civil forfeiture? 
Sure. And I want to make it very clear that I have not reviewed any of the documents in relation to this specific case. But civil forfeiture applications are really not that uncommon. Um, So what happens is that the state will allege that a person has perhaps monies or um, property or items that were purchased with the proceeds of crime or are the proceeds of crime. And so they would need to show that there was no source of legitimate income in order to uh, obtain those items. And therefore, they seek for those items to be seized to the state. And part of it, I would imagine, then, is they have to prove that there were proceeds that were an instrument of unlawful activity and that those proceeds were used, I suppose, for the purchase of this piece of property? Yeah, that's right. And we often see these types of applications coming within the context of, say, you know, drug trafficking schemes, for example. Uh, That is one where we will typically see these types of applications being made. Uh, in this particular case, the owner is a gentleman by the name of Mohammed Movasagi. He's been in the news. I think people may even recognize that name or at least be familiar with the stories around this uh, impromptu Granny's nightclub that was set up. But in, in the documents, it also makes mention of his brother. He's got several brothers, but one brother uh, that the claim is that the brother is associated to known organized crime members. Does that play? into it then if this brother's name is also on the title of the property? I'm sure that it could. You know, um, they would look at who the owner of the property is or owners and try to source out whether or not there's any legitimate income that would support a property um, of this magnitude. I mean, it's a pretty large property and it's quite pricey. Uh, in downtown Vancouver, I'm sure as everybody is aware, uh, is some of the most unaffordable real estate in the world. Um, and it seems as though about a million dollars or so was put down in cash as a deposit on it. So um, I expect that the government will be looking at whether or not there is a legitimate source uh, for that type of money and whether or not there is um, and then be making this application pursuant to that. And that's certainly part of it as well. And uh, sorry, all of these papers in front of me saying that he did put down a million dollars cash, which I would think most of us probably don't have a million dollars cash <laughs> sitting around. Uh, here it is. One of the points made is that he did not have sufficient lawful income to acquire the down payment or purchase the property. He did not have sufficient law lawful income to service the mortgage. So how important is that if they can prove that that there's really no lawful way you could have come up with this money? Yeah, and that's certainly going to be a huge factor in the court's analysis as to whether or not um, they can satisfy the court that these are indeed the proceeds of crime. If there's no legitimate source of income, then it's difficult for the court to say that it's a legitimate purchase. So um, it is what it's going to center around at the end of the day. Um, and I'm sure that there's going to be a number of different factors that the court is going to consider in its ultimate analysis. Is it a case, do you think, as well, because it was such a public case, because he was clearly uh, not worried about the rules, that he continued doing this even after being shut down? Does that factor in, in that the province, uh, because of the attention focused on this case or put on this case, that they would go after it? 
I think so. I think that it would be, uh, you know, willfully ignorant to think that public opinion hasn't somewhat played into the treatment of this particular individual. Um, so I do think that they're trying to probably set an example for other people who may think about uh, breaking the um, public health order rules and guidelines in the future. So I do think that it's somewhat precedent setting in that manner, at least. Uh, which is interesting, too, because it's not as though so many people are in a position where they would even be able to do that anyway. <laughs> That's right. And so it is an interesting case. It's one that captured quite a bit of you know, public attention, rightfully so. And so I think a lot of people are interested to see you know, what comes of it over and above the penalty that was imposed by the provincial court. Are civil forfeiture cases, do you think, are they more difficult to prove than, than say, a straight-up court case or easier? Well, I mean, I think it just depends. Every case is a little bit different, different circumstances, different um, evidence. And so uh, I think that these types of applications present their own challenges for the prosecution in terms of showing that these are indeed the proceeds of crime. But they also present challenges for people who are served with them. You know, I mean, it seems as though this person has quite a bit at stake in terms of their capital investment into a piece of property. And so um, certainly, you know, this is something that I expect would be very vigorously defended before the court. Right. And if you were found that it were the court ruled against you and Mr. Movasagi was told you have to sell this condo and you have to forfeit that $1 million down payment you put in there, what's the recourse? Can somebody appeal that or what happens if that's the finding? Yes. Yeah, so um, what would happen next would be that, of course, the property would be subject to sale and then the money would um, end up going to the government if any you know, appeal proceedings were not pursued or if they were unsuccessful. So uh, the court decisions are subject to appeal. Um, and so in this case, you know, I think we would have to see what happened and whether or not there was any basis to appeal a decision of this nature. All right. It is an interesting one, given all of the uh, ties to the pandemic and the fact that I guess it's different in this case, too. I mean, oftentimes we do have uh, if it's gang related or something, we might have footage of a clubhouse or we might have footage of a crime that took place. But it's, see, I, it's, it just seems, I guess, a bit different in that we're talking about a party house. Yeah, and one of the interesting elements, at least to my understanding of this particular application, is that the alleged illegal behavior uh, uh, happened after the purchase of the property. And so I think that that's an interesting and unique facet of this particular application, at least what's being reported about it, um, which could present challenges for the government in showing that you know proceeds of that alleged criminal activity were actually used to purchase the property as it happened uh, after the property was purchased. Right. So wouldn't they also have to prove there was illegal activity before? Because otherwise, how is it proceeds of crime? It certainly seems that way, yes. So that could be one of the challenges that the government might face in these very unique circumstances. All right. Sarah Lehman, always great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. Okay, let's take another look at what was announced earlier today at that news conference with Dr. Bonnie Henry and the Health Minister. Richard Zussman joins us now. Thanks so much, Richard. I know it's been a very busy day for you. Yeah, Jill, my pleasure. Sure has, but I'm always happy to come on the show. <laughs> well, you were listening in. We played some of it on the program as well, but not the part about the regional restrictions coming into effect today. So what is happening in the eastern part of the Fraser Valley? Yeah, so the full list of exactly who this uh, is uh, 
what regions are restricted here is online, but it includes Chilliwack, Abbotsford, Agassiz, Harrison Hot Springs, uh, and what it means as well as Mission um, and, and Hope. And what it means for those regions is they are now starting tomorrow going to be under similar restrictions as Northern and Interior Health. So let me go through them. Private gatherings limited to five additional people or one other household in the region. Outdoor gatherings are now limited to 10 people unless everyone is vaccinated. And this is where, you know, the key details are. So for events, the maximum will be 10 inside or 50 outside unless people are fully immunized. So in that region, the vaccination card rules are now changing. So everywhere else, up until October 24th, you only need to provide proof that you've received one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, starting in this Fraser East region, you will be required to show proof of full immunization to go to events. So that will include, you know, the Vancouver or the Abbotsford Canucks games. There's one that's taking place um, at the end of October, uh, before October 24th. It also will uh, count for uh, movie theaters uh, and other event venues. Uh, it will also uh, be um, for gyms as well. So at gyms, you will be required to show proof of full immunization. Again, this is only for the Eastern Fraser uh, region. So Fraser Valley East, Chilliwack, Abbotsford Hope, uh, the communities I mentioned. Uh, province will also be requiring mask wearing in that community in all indoor workplaces. So unless someone's alone behind a barrier at a distance, you'll be required at your workplace to wear a mask in those regions. So those are the additional regional restrictions being put in place for Chilliwack, Hope, Mission, Agassiz, Abbotsford, Harrison, Hot Springs, and, and that the surrounding area. And uh, I guess it's, it's kind of obvious, but did Dr. Henry go into detail as to what the numbers were like, why it was required yeah. or why she took the step of bringing in these additional restrictions? Yeah, so low vaccination, high case count. So when you continue to look at the regional data that's being produced uh, by the BC CDC, uh, you are seeing those communities continue to be near the top uh, for transmission of the virus and near the bottom for immunization. Some of those communities, like um, Abbotsford, have extremely high levels of immunization, but there are other communities uh, within that region where we're seeing low rates. It's still not as low as we're seeing in areas like um, uh, the, the Peace region uh, up in the northern part of BC, or even in areas like Vanderhoof or, or by extension Prince George. But there are still substantial issues with this area in terms of what we're seeing in terms of spread of the virus uh, and lower rates of vaccination. So that so that is the explanation for why we are seeing uh, these areas specifically be targeted for regional restrictions. And was there any concern with this, the additional restriction then of full immunization? If somebody goes into, say, a gym or a, a place, a restaurant where that's now required in this port, this part of the province, will the scanners know then it'll come up full yeah. or, or it'll know if you've got your second shot two weeks ago, it'll know when you're considered fully vaccinated? Yeah, so when you go and go online and get your vaccine card, uh, the information is inputted there. So right now there are three different versions of the card. One says not immunized, one says partially vaccinated, one says fully vaccinated. And uh, if you 
get your sh second shot, you can go back online and update your new QR code or your new vaccine card uh, in order to prove that full immunization. So that's built in. And, and while we were talking, Jill, I popped up um, the uh, case counts from communities and in Fraser Health, no surprise, uh, based on the week from September 8th to 14th, the last time that we had data, Agassiz Harrison is number one, Chilliwack's number two, Mission's number three, Hope's number four, Abbotsford's number five. Well below that is Maple Ridge, Pitt Meadows, South Surrey, White Rock, Surrey. You know, we are seeing, especially in Fraser Health, that those are the areas where we're seeing the highest rates of COVID-19 spread in the community. All right. So that's what's happening in the eastern part of the Fraser Valley. I know Dr. Henry was also asked about school situations yeah. and she had a lot of information on that. And from what I gathered, she was saying, yes, we are expecting we are going to see uh, cases, but they are going to change a little bit on how they tell people about that. Yeah. So the reporting is now changing in terms of uh COVID-19 cases linked to school. So there have been a lot of concerns raised by parents uh, that there was no reporting going on. It will now, starting today, be posted on health authority websites in terms of potential exposure events. These will be slightly delayed from some of these parent groups online who are tracking COVID cases based on um, notifications they are getting directly from schools. But the health authorities will now be responsible, It'll be similar to last year. Uh, so a, a notice will come if a person, staff or student attended school while infectious and there's an increased risk of COVID-19 to the groups. We are seeing, uh, unlike last school year, we are seeing more transmission within the school settings this school year. There are fewer cohorts. Uh, the Delta variant is more transmissible. We also saw numbers today that show that nine to 11 year olds and five to eight year olds are leading the way in this province now in terms of new COVID cases per 100,000 of the population. The good sign is that is not leading to an increase in hospitalizations uh, within that age demographic. But, you know, even so, I asked about this, the province is unwilling to put in a mask mandate for K to 12. Right now, the mask mandate exists from grade four to 12 with a recommendation for those K to three to wear their mask. Uh, the province is unwilling to put in that extra layer of protection. The argument they're trying to make is that mask or no mask, so five to eight or nine to 11, um, the only real thing that is preventing transmission in the setting is vaccine, that mask isn't actually really preventing spread. I know it would make a lot of parents and teachers more confident in the system if they put in the mask mandate, but it's not something the province uh, looks like they're willing to budge on at this point. All right, Richard, thank you so much for jumping on the show today. Appreciate it. Happy to help. Thanks, Joe. Well, we have a bit of an update when it comes to what is happening in Stanley Park, other parks in the city of Vancouver as well, but specifically trying to avoid a repeat of where we were. People being attacked in the park, 45 attacks on humans by coyotes that in many cases had been fed by humans, had become accustomed to humans in the park and very aggressive. As we know, more than a dozen of those coyotes were destroyed, were captured and euthanized in the park. So how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Joining me to talk about a motion passed at the park board and what that means for the future of anyone, for anybody caught feeding wildlife is Chad Townsend, Senior Environmental and Sustainability Planner at the Vancouver Park Board. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. 
Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the vote that was taken? So the Park Board voting to support a bylaw amendment when it comes to fining people who are caught feeding wildlife or leaving food out, attractants out for wildlife. What does this vote, what does this actually change? Well, it, it clarifies things, I, I hope, in the, in the public's mind, but certainly for our own our own purposes with giving disincentives and, uh, and, and being punitive with respect to wildlife feeding. The bylaw that we have in place overall, park bylaw, is in need of a uh, full overhaul, but we really wanted to take this portion forward in advance. Given the events of, of the last few months with coyotes, but also you know, we get a lot of feedback on the geese population numbers, and, uh, and I don't think it's well understood that feeding squirrels or leaving food out for ducks is also contributing to, to wider wildlife problems. Sort of have indirect feeding of, of coyotes was cited a number of times in Stanley Park this summer, and also that in feeding prey, you're also giving the population size for, for things like coyotes or raccoons false indications on how big it should be. Plus, of course, we all learned about uh, aggressive aggression that it can cause when you have unnatural food sources. And and so do you think that this will work as a deterrent then? Because I know there was also the idea of upping the fine or making the penalty worse. But do you think the, the change or what, the direction the park board is going, is this going to be enough to work as a deterrent? Well, we hope so. This fine level set at $500, but you know, it's something we can we can always change up to 2000 within our park bylaw. So there's no magic number, I guess, in terms of a deterrent, but we want to, to send a message and make sure that the people understand that, again, this isn't just for what we call dangerous wildlife in the provincial definition, which would be cougars, coyotes, bears, but this is also applying to Canada geese, pigeons, squirrels, ducks, anything that people are feeding within our parks, it's having a negative effect on their populations and our and we're not doing our job with respect to um, managing for healthy habitat when we're allowing people to to feed wildlife. Right, and, and you touched on that. So is that where we're seeing kind of the biggest difference here when we talk about the BC Wildlife Act and the provisions or the rules when it comes to feeding dangerous wildlife, but even in that act, there's no restriction against feeding what would be deemed non-dangerous urban wildlife. So is this where, or that's kind of a gap where this bylaw under the park board will fill that? That's right. And so we receive regular reports through Stanley Park Ecological Society or elsewhere in our park system. I showed a few photographs to the board last night of, of people directly feeding raccoons for their own either enjoyment or photographs. Um, we get these documented reports. And so leaving kibble and pet food out is also causing problems beyond raccoons. And, uh, and there are also raccoons that have become aggressive. So that's just one example. That this, the issue overall is, is bigger than coyotes. That's certainly brought it to the fore in the last few months. And many of the commissioners spoke passionately about, about how difficult the, the last few months have been for, for all of us involved. Uh, a cull of coyotes was, was a place that none of us wanted to get to.
No, I think a lot of people would agree with that for sure. Do you think, though, then, does this mean that moving forward, we'll see people, uh, because unfortunately we do see people, and I don't think they mean any harm, or they, they don't mean to be causing a problem, but you see somebody, say, sitting on a park bench feeding bread to the ducks. So even uh, in downtown Vancouver, right outside where I work, there are constantly people feeding the pigeons right on the plaza there. And again, I don't think it comes from a bad place, but they think it's it's fun or that it causes no harm. So moving forward, might we see people doing that ticketed? Yeah, and this has to be part of this. This alone won't solve some of our issues, and we know that. And so this has to be part of a wider wider education campaign, certainly in, in national park systems or even on Granville Island. They're more aggressive in their, in their signage that the you know, BC SPA and, uh, and Parks Canada make it very clear, fed wildlife is dead wildlife eventually. So you're really not doing wildlife any favors by by feeding them at any time of year. And it really, the knock-on effects in urban ecosystem are that we, we're going to have more problems if, if the behavior continues. But we also need to, to think more carefully about monitoring and, uh, and replacing some bins within parks. And so all of these efforts are to try and reduce the natural, the unnatural food attractants, but the direct wildlife feeding I shared one story with the board last night that that you may have already talked about in your program. But one of the one of the coyotes was removed from Stanley Park simply by rustling a, a potato chip bag, and the coyote came right up to the conservation officer. So that's that's the point that it got to in terms of food habituation. Wow, that's uh, that's quite amazing. My domestic dogs at home hardly do that when uh, when rattling the treat bag. So that's got to be concerning. Yeah, sad. that a that a wild animal was that conditioned. Yes. Moving forward, like you said, nobody wanted to see this get to the point of a call. But when we're talking about 45 attacks on humans, I think most would also agree something needed to be done. So how important is it or what else do you think needs to be done as far as making sure uh, getting that information out there? You talked a bit about the bins that that are closed so animals can't get into them. But what else do you think can be done or needs to be done so this is not repeated? Yeah, this is only one step. Uh, the, the bylaw changes that the board supported last night, they'll need to be enacted at the at the next board meeting if they're still in support, and then, then we get to enforcement logistics. And so that is one aspect, but I, I wanted to, to emphasize that this isn't strictly a reaction to coyotes. We need this bylaw in place and strengthened and clarified for a variety of reasons, including Canada geese numbers and uh, and raccoons and uh, and you know, duck populations, it's just an unnatural intervention in our, our urban ecosystems to have direct feeding. And so those are the next steps on, on the feeding aspects, but uh, there'll be others when it comes to, to wildlife in all of our park systems, not just Stanley Park, but this would apply across all 240 parks where issues exist, uh, um, wildlife feeding to different to differing degrees, but certainly the the need to do it was was apparent, and um, and we're hoping that it becomes a deterrent, along with an education campaign. So we hope that you know people who notice this behavior tell us about it when they see it. 
Right. Yeah, you mentioned to the other other types of animals. Can we make a direct link when we talk about Canada geese? And I think anybody who's spent any time in the parks recently would know there are a lot of them. Is there a direct link that the reason that population is so large is partly or, or mainly because of human feeding? Well, we provide also you know, quite good habitat when it comes to Canada geese when, with mown lawns and, uh, and that's Part of what they're enjoying in terms of population numbers, but yes, I think that any any wildlife reacts with the number of young that they have on available habitat, and so increasing the food because from a bread bag or a, a grain grain feeding or whatever it is, increasing the food sends a signal to the to the population well, it, it's uh, it's okay to have more eggs because the habitat will support that. And similarly with mammals, and that's one of the, I think, perhaps misunderstood reasons why we should not be feeding wildlife. And I know you can't talk about the enforcement angle on this, but you did mention that this is one step, that's another step. Do we need to also be talking about the number of park rangers that are available and the number of people involved with the park board in that it's fine to have a bylaw, it's fine to have fines, but if there's nobody handing them out, if there's no enforcement, where's the incentive? That's right. And it's a disincentive in this case with the, with fines. But all of the all of the management actions that I've mentioned will require additional resources, and we'll we'll need to be thinking about that with the board, with the city, and uh, and even with the province, who who have employed some conservation officers to date, but will will need some support going forward. And so the province certainly has expectations of the of the park board. Now they've helped uh, in the Stanley Park situation on on food attractant management going forward, and all all will require some resources. So whether it be our our rangers or city staff or maybe even provincial staff, will will need to to look at how best to enforce this and you know the monitoring of unnatural food attractants left out. All right. Chad, thank you so much. I know a lot of people are interested and wanting to see what happens next with this. So thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this today. Appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Jill. Well, we touched on this on the program yesterday, talking about the fact Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, have been freed. We know they are back home on Canadian soil. That followed the release of Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. So what does this mean for the future of Huawei and the idea or proposal of Huawei being part of telecommunications here in Canada? Earlier today, the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, was asked again about why his government has not banned Huawei and if there are any plans to do so. And the answer was quite similar to the answer we've been given over and over, that a decision will be coming sometime in the next few weeks. Well, let's bring in Carmi Levy, journalist and tech analyst, to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us today. Great to be here, Jill. Thanks for having me. What are your thoughts on the the answer still being there? Ha- there is no ban right now, but we're not going to tell you if we're planning that. Just that there will be an announcement sometime in the coming weeks. Well, you know the clock is ticking. You know, five G is the the next big thing in wireless connectivity. Countries like the U.S. have already decided very clearly that they don't want. 
uh, Huawei on their infrastructure. The other uh, members of the Five Eyes group of countries, so the UK, uh, New Zealand, Australia, uh, have essentially said no. They're, they don't want them. Japan, Taiwan have also said no. Uh, so there's a global precedent here of countries that just you look at this company that is essentially in bed with the Chinese government, has a deal with them to hand over data if the Communist Party so requests. Uh, and, you know, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want to have that technology on our most sensitive wireless networks from coast to coast to coast? And the short answer is no. And so why we have to wait, I can understand why the prime minister wanted to wait until after the two Michaels were home. They're home now. You don't have to wait a few more weeks. You've probably already done your due diligence. It's time to drop the hammer and basically tell Huawei, thanks, but no thanks. We've got other companies who can give us the boxes that we need. And haven't we actually been seeing that from uh, the major telecommunications companies in Canada? We have. Uh, Bell Canada, uh, you know, in the, in the absence of any federal government guidance, uh, our telecommunications companies in Canada had already proceeded to start installing equipment on their national networks as they should. No one can wait for Ottawa to get off uh, off of the couch and, and make a decision. They have to build this out and bring these services to market. That's how we compete. So they had gone ahead and started equipping it, and Bell had, had invested the most in terms of using Huawei-branded equipment, and they have since announced... Uh, that they, in fact, will be uh, decommissioning it, taking it down, uh, disconnecting it, taking a, a billion-plus-dollar write-down on what they spent on this equipment that is now, to them, essentially useless due to security concerns. Uh, the other uh, uh, pr- providers, Rogers and Telus, they've partnered with, with other companies, Ericsson, Nokia, Samsung, and so they don't have uh, any Huawei equipment in their infrastructure. Um, but, you know, this it's, it's a lesson to governments. Uh, get ahead of the, pro- the problem. Don't let industry figure it out for you. Give them the guidance that they need so that they can compete not just within Canada's borders, but with countries outside who are also racing ahead with their own 5G networks. And we want to be able to keep up with, with them. Uh, do we actually need the prime minister then or the federal government to say, no, we're not interested, thanks, but no thanks, when we see companies doing it anyway? Or, or is it needed as more of showing of solidarity with the Five Eyes? Yeah, I think it's more of a, a political crossing, you know, crossing your T's and dotting your I's more than anything else. I think the telecom industry has shown very clearly they don't need to wait for Ottawa to invoke a policy decision. They can make decisions on their own. They see which way the winds are blowing and uh, they can decide very clearly which companies they wish to support when they are building uh, technology to deliver services to you, me and all other Canadians. Um, so, yeah, I, it'll it'll make for a great headline when Ottawa finally does decide to make a decision. But truth of the matter is the industry has already moved on. Um, and, and at stake here is how well does Canada want to perform in the digital economy of tomorrow? Do we want to lead 5G or not? And our telecom companies have essentially said, we can't afford to wait. we got to move. And uh, so they did. Uh, you mentioned uh, as well that, that Huawei is a company, uh, like any company, I would imagine, in China that has to hand over information should the government deem that they want it or for whatever reason. Is that the main concern then if Huawei was then to get in the 5G infrastructure in Canada, it does open us up to security threats? Very much so, because you know, who, when, when you open up a box of Huawei equipment and you, you hang it on a cell phone tower or you connect it to a national network, uh, do you know what's going on inside that box? Do you know if any data is being shared with the mothership back in China? Do you know if uh, China gives the Communist Party uh, the keys, the back door, so to speak, the encryption keys, 
so that uh, secure traffic can then be actually monitored. Uh, you know, I don't want to lie awake at night worrying that my traffic is subject to scrutiny by the Chinese government. Certainly not after what happened with the two Michaels, certainly not after what we've been seeing with the human rights abuses and, you know, across China for decades now. Uh, This is a country that plays fast and loose and loose with the rules of human rights. Uh, And we know very clearly that they're they're absolutely willing to use technology to monitor their people. Uh, if they monitor their people, they'll clearly monitor us as well. And so I think we have to not just look at this as a Huawei issue, but really look at all the technology that we're using, both for corporate use as well as for personal use. That laptop or tablet or smartphone that you buy, where was it made? Where were the components manufactured or assembled? And I think we're going to have to have a national reckoning and a global reckoning about how much do we really want China to be providing that because they've shown they're absolutely willing to go there and use those factories to essentially digitally spy on, on us wherever we may be. Uh, I've seen, uh, obviously, not in the 5G network, but it's not completely unusual to see somebody that has a flash drive or, or sorry, an air card that's a, a Huawei air card. Should we be concerned, do you think, even uh, of something of, of that, an air card, that that could also be subject to a security breach? Absolutely. You know, an air card is an example of, of a consumer technology that is used by you and me to you know, use our technology wirelessly connected wherever we may be. Uh, and you know, there's a reason why Google banned Huawei from accessing its uh, operating system, that Google didn't want to do business with Huawei in that way anymore because they didn't trust them. So Huawei went and developed their own operating system. And you can buy a Huawei phone today, but it doesn't run Android. Uh, so if Google can't trust them, I'm pretty sure that you and I can't either. And when I'm looking at an air card like that, I'm thinking, is it so much better than, than other wireless technology from other companies that I should buy that? For the longest time, Huawei did offer a certain price advantage in certain cases. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's not differentially better than everything else. And quite frankly, if you want to reduce the risk of your exposure uh, to you know, your, your data ending up where you don't want it to end up, uh, I'd probably recommend buying something else. So with the, where we are now with, I think it was, it's even since before 2019, There's there's been delays when it comes to an actual definitive decision on Huawei being part of Canada's 5G network. Uh, the Prime Minister saying, yes, there will be a decision in the coming weeks. Uh, and I think uh, the quote from yesterday or the, or the day before was, it will be something in the best interest of Canadians. I mean, is there any question as to what that decision needs to be? Well, you know, from where I sit, the only decision should be, uh, you know, a hard and fast no. Uh, The best interest of Canadians is ensuring that we are digitally secure and that we use uh, equipment from companies that we trust. Uh, Huawei is a company that we simply don't trust. Uh, Ericsson, Nokia, we kind of do. So uh, it's a fairly open and shut case from where I sit. uh, And pretty much every other technologist that I've worked with uh, has arrived at the same conclusion. There's When you look at the offerings from Huawei versus the offerings from competing companies, uh, there isn't any you know technological breakthrough in a Huawei product versus anyone else's that would you know, compel us to buy that over anything else. So in the absence of that, add the security concerns in over and above that, and it's just a really easy decision. You go with the ones that are most secure, and it, it applies in 5G. It applies when you buy a phone for your personal use. It applies when you buy any technology. And I think this is a good conversation for us to have because it means we're finally putting security first and we're finally starting to have conversations about it that we should have had years ago.
Uh, you use the phrase with, with the other companies uh, that we kind of trust. Do you think more needs to be done then as well to, that we do trust them and that we're not thinking, OK, well, I'll give up my privacy. I know that, that I have to give up some of it, but I, I trust more to do it with this company rather than this company. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those cases where, where there are lots of shades of gray, but certainly no blacks and whites. And it's not that there, you know, any one company is perfect. For example, you know, uh, Ericsson, uh, Nokia, Samsung, Cisco, they would happily share our, or use our usage data to drive their marketing programs. And so it's not that they're going to use it to spy on us. They'll use it to sell us stuff. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the background. But, you know, you know, but when I compare sort of what China wants to do politically versus what these other companies want to do from a marketing perspective, I'll take the marketing intrusion. I can deal with that. I can go into the settings and tighten things up a little bit. What I can't change is the Chinese government looking over my shoulder. And so, you know, I think you know, we need to go into any hardware acquisition, whether it's personal, corporate, government, whatever, with our eyes wide open and ask those questions and recognize that we may not get all the answers that we want, but at least, you know, we'll, we'll put ourselves in a better position, a more secure position if we ask the questions, get the answers and make, make better decisions in the process. All right, Carmi, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe.